Good evening. Good to see you all again tonight. We're going to be finishing up this series called uh, Jesus Changes Everything. And uh, if you want to, go ahead and open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, with me. I was thinking on the way over here, I had um, I spent a couple hours this afternoon kind of pulling together what I wanted to finish up with tonight. And then all that changed in between five... 20 and 535. So this series has been apt. I think about half of what I intended to speak on earlier in the day gets changed right before I get here. So John 1, um, I want to, I was thinking today, just trying to pull thoughts together. There's so many different things we could talk about in a series like this. And of course, seven weeks is far too short to to deal with the topic of Jesus and his impact on history and our lives and scripture and everything that we could possibly do. So tonight, I, I want to start in John and uh, look at a, a passage that we're all probably very familiar with. Uh, John chapter 1, one of the great beginnings uh, of all the Gospels, I think. To, to me, it's, it's one of my favorites. It's, 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 it's kind of out there. It's very, uh, very heavy, what John says here. And uh, John 1, 1, you all know the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, John starts with this emphasis on the Word, and the Word uh, being God Himself. Uh, here, this is, this is John's way of talking about the second person of the Trinity that we know as the person of our Lord Jesus. And um, John, who was a, if you remember, John's a Jewish fisherman. But he spends his life ministering to a Greco-Roman culture. And so throughout this, uh, throughout this book, throughout the gospel, he will often take words or ideas that are common in the Greco-Roman culture, but he, but he infuses them with a Hebrew understanding to, to root his audience in reality. And the word uh, is, is one of those uh, vocabulary pieces that he takes up because he, what he wants them to understand is the Hebrew concept of what the word is. It's, it's God's speaking. Uh, it's God's authoritative statement to humanity and for humanity. And as we're going to go on to see, the word uh, as Jesus is the very representative of God himself. So a very, very powerful start. What I want you to see, skip on down, there's just a ton there in those first 13 uh, verses. But what I want us to focus on starts in verse 14, which again is probably a, a very familiar section to all of us. The Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 14 He says, Now the Word became flesh and took up residence among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me has surpassed me, because He existed before me. Indeed, We have all received grace after grace from His fullness, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side, He has revealed Him. Uh, In this text, you see... uh, powerful statement there in verse 14. The Word became flesh, took up residence among us, and we observed His glory. Glory 
as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Tonight, I want to focus on that word glory. Everything we're going to talk about kind of, kind of comes out from that word, different connections with that word glory. Of course, you know, the theological background of this, we're, we're talking about the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son who existed in all eternity as the Son, but in history, he, he enters into uh, history, takes on human flesh, and we know him as Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And so uh, John has that in the background. And of course, John is one of the disciples who actually walked with Jesus. He saw Jesus. He was captivated by Jesus. Uh, his, his gospel and the letters that John wrote, Jesus is at the center of everything that he writes. And I think that's an important perspective because in, in, a, in a study like this where we're thinking about what Jesus has done for us and to us, sometimes we can get focused on all those things what Jesus has done for us, and and we can miss the person himself, a person that deserves our worship and our attention, and that we should be captivated like uh, by him in the same way that John is. So tonight, I, I want to take that word glory and look at some of the statements that John makes here in the first chapter and, and kind of go on out from there. This is not going to be so much a, 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 a expository presentation of these verses. Instead, I'm just going to take that one word and we're going to trace some themes there. The, um, the word glory, a very important word in the Old Testament. If you know, it's often attached to the person of God himself. God displays his glory uh, in many different ways. Isaiah, one of, the, one of the famous refrains all throughout the book of Isaiah is, uh, the Lord says, I am the Lord God and I share my glory with no one. A uh, very powerful presentation of that. And uh, in Greek, the word glory shows up all throughout the New Testament. Sometimes it's not always uh, translated as glory. But uh, the two words that we get the word glory from in the Hebrew Scriptures and in the Greek Scriptures, uh, I'm, I'm going to take those and I'm going to pull those two things together and try to try to give some larger vision for what I think John is pointing toward here. And so I want to talk about glory, and I want to talk about it in terms of four things. What is glory? Uh, what is Jesus' glory when we see it? And what I'm going to say is, uh, Jesus' glory is His radiant, profound, inexhaustible beauty that is absolutely remarkable. It's His radiant, profound, inexhaustible beauty, that's the key word, that is simply remarkable. And when I use the word beauty here, I'm not talking about uh, the way our culture thinks of beauty, like glamorous beauty, like the way Jesus looked. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a person that is captivating in everything that they are, the way they speak, the way they carry themselves, everything about him. And the reason I use that word is uh, sometimes I think when we think of Jesus, he's just he's too far removed from the everyday for us. And one of the things that I see in the Gospels is, is when Jesus is moving in and out of everyday people that he's running into, those people are simply blown away by what he does and what he says and the way he carries himself. And so uh, tonight, as, as we kind of finish up with this, my real hope is that this will be a, a, a stimulus for us all to keep on going back to looking at Jesus, not, not just for what he's done for us, but to get to know him better uh, as a person, thinking about him as a person, as the Lord God in human flesh, eternal. 
uh, yet human. And, and that will push us hopefully into, into deeper communion with him. So, so radiant. Why do I pick the word radiant? Uh, because of what John says there in uh, verse 14, the word became flesh, took up residence among us. By the way, you all probably know that uh, this translation has uh, took up residence among us. Uh, I think King James has uh, dwelt among us. Uh, in Greek, uh, the word is tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. Uh, and that, of course, is taken directly from the Hebrew Scriptures. When God dwelt amongst the people, first in the tabernacle, later in the temple, His presence was among His people. Uh, but then John says, we have seen His glory. That, that's what I mean radiant. The glory of Jesus is something that's meant to be seen. It's meant to be seen. And if you look at the Gospels, uh, even Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they will do this as well. They present the, the narrative about Jesus as something that they want you to see and be part of. I, I think John does this more pointedly than the other Gospel writers, but, but each of the writers, in one way or another, m- meant to present these uh, narratives not just to get us to know facts about Jesus, but so that we can see Jesus. So we can enter into what he's doing and how he's doing it. And John especially. Uh, every, uh, every story that he tells from this point forward uh, out of Jesus' ministry is meant to draw us into what was going on. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he comes to him at night. Right? So we need to visualize that. Why is it night? Well, because Nicodemus doesn't want to be seen, apparently. And all the other implications that comes with that. So as we read through... John wants us to see Jesus. And that's where I get the word radiant from. Uh, it's, it's, it's meant to be seen. But also, taken in its fuller extent, you need to think of, of Jesus in the book of Revelation. In chapter 1, when Jesus shows up and he is literally radiant, uh, light is coming from him. He looks like bronze that's been taken out of a furnace. He's glowing and he's so uh, terrifying, if I could use that word in a positive way. All John can do is fall down before him like a dead man. Uh, so radiant, uh, Jesus presents himself as somebody to be seen. Profound, it's profound. And this is where I hinge on the word uh, that is translated glory more often than not in the Hebrew scriptures. And that word is kavod. And, and the basic meaning of the word is heavy, something that's heavy or weighty. And, and it's really interesting. We still use that uh, in our common speech. Whenever we think of something that is deep or profound, we say, ah, that's heavy, right? Uh, we attach weight to it. One, one commentator uh, talks about this. He says the word glory uh, in Hebrew, literally meaning weight, indicate, uh, indicates a person standing in the community. And when applied to God, it appoints to his standing at the center of life, his supreme power and majesty, awesome and incomparable. When we think of Jesus uh, and his, his beauty, his radiant beauty, it is profound. It is weighty. It is heavy. And let me say this, sometimes it's incomprehensible. We cannot fully get our minds around what he's doing or why he's doing it. And it calls for us to meditate on it, to ponder over it. Uh, Jesus tells his parables that way. His parables are meant to be profound so that you can't understand them the first time you hear them. Uh, they're, they're told for people of faith 
to go back and ponder and think about. And Oh, okay, now I get it. Same thing with the way Jesus teaches. Uh, let, me, let me just uh, lay this out as one of the most profound things I think Jesus teaches uh, in all of his teaching. This is in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 45 in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I think one of the hardest things that Jesus gives us to do. Listen to what he says. He says, You have heard, it, heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Just for a second, see if you can imagine being in the audience and hearing that for the first time. We, we, we are so used to hearing that as Christians, sometimes we forget the profound atomic explosion that that is the first time you hear it. And I, I think of those words every time I look in the Old Testament and read the Psalms, where, where David will often pray for vengeance against his enemies, and rightly so. Because he is the anointed king who represents God and his kingdom. But then when Jesus, the true king, comes into the world, and to me this is one of the most profound ways that he changes our perspective on ourselves and our place in the world and the nature of the kingdom. As he, the one true king, comes into creation, this is what he teaches us. Right? <laughs> Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I've got a good friend who says uh, the easy things that Jesus gave us to do are so difficult. I don't know why we focus on anything else. And this passage, I think, fits with that. Uh, This is a profoundly difficult thing to do. And yet, it's the very thing we need to do to be like Jesus and to be characterized uh, as sons of the kingdom, sons and daughters of the kingdom. Uh, but, but there's something else. There's something else profoundly radical about what Jesus is telling us to do here. Paul, in Romans 2, says that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Everybody remember that passage? Sometimes I, I think we forget how these things work in the kingdom. These profound, deep truths that are rooted in the very person of Jesus himself. Um, a guy named Greg Boyd wrote, wrote a book, I think I've mentioned this earlier, called The Myth of a Christian Nation. And I'm, I'm not going to recommend that book to you because it'll really mess up everything you think you know. Um, and you can't go away with it without being beaten up. But man, he says some profound things in the book. And one of them is where he's talking about this profound truth of, of loving enemies, praying for those who persecute us. And, and all that is, is built on Jesus' teaching about self-sacrificial love. Uh, Uh, the very nature of his kingdom. Listen to what Boyd says. He says, The kingdom of God advances by people lovingly placing themselves under others in service to others at cost to themselves. In truth, there is no greater power on the planet than self-sacrificial love. Coming under others has a power to do what laws and bullets and bombs can never do, namely, Bring about transformation in an enemy's heart. Living in this Calvary-like love moment by moment in all circumstances and in relation to all people is the calling of those who are aligned with the kingdom that Jesus himself came to bring. I I, I love that statement. 
this self-sacrificial love has the power to do what laws, bullets, bombs could never do, namely bring about the transformation in an enemy's heart. That's what Jesus does. That is one of the ways he changes everything. He actually treats his enemies in such a way that makes them his people, transforms them into his people. And again, only the Lord God can do that through the power of the Spirit working in and through us in the same way he worked in and through Jesus. But that truth is absolutely profound. And I think that's probably what John has in mind. Uh, Read through the Gospel of John and you see uh, the people that stand opposed to Jesus. Some stay opposed to him their whole life. Others... Through his love and self-sacrifice, they are transformed to be some of his key disciples and to go on and do incredible things uh, for the sake of his name. So this beauty of Jesus that we're talking about is radiant. It's meant to be seen. It's profound, sometimes incomprehensible. The other thing about it is it's inexhaustible. At the very end of of John's gospel, he makes a very famous statement. Um, At the very end, he says, there are many other things that Jesus did. And if every one of them were written down, I suppose the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. We are never at an end to studying the person of our Lord Jesus. And we're not just studying Him as an object to be studied. We're coming to Him as He Himself is the subject that's teaching us. And so we simply come to Him and open ourselves up to Him and say, Lord, what do you have for me now? What, What are you showing me now as I'm getting into Your Word? And that's why the Scripture itself is inexhaustible. No matter No matter how many times you read it, The Spirit is always going to be able to open your mind, your eyes, to some new profound truth, some new profound reality about Jesus and the nature of the kingdom and the nature of God and and our relationship with them. So the knowledge of what we could know about Jesus, it's absolutely inexhaustible. Uh, And then we get to the word beauty. Jesus is beautiful in and of himself, and it's part of that beauty that transforms the world. I was, there was a, there's a really interesting um, presentation given by Eric Metaxas. A lot of y'all probably know his name. He wrote a really uh, a very interesting biography of Martin Luther. Uh, he also has written some other, um, other biographies. And uh, in, this, um, in this presentation, he's talking about William Wilberforce who, of course, led uh, the charge to end slavery uh, in the British Empire in the 1800s, or late 1700s, 1800s, if you know his story. And uh, one of the things that Metaxas talks about in that lecture is how it is impossible to think about the West as it is today without the influence that Christianity has had in it. Just the fact that we all... Now, y'all, this is disappearing rapidly, and you know this. Uh, <laughs> just uh, part of it fueled by things like Twitter and Facebook and all the other vicious forms of inhuman attack that have been crafted. I just listened to a podcast this week where a guy saying all those things need to be shut down immediately uh, in terms of just the negative impact they're having on our culture. And... Uh, but we, at least in this room, we all remember a time when, when people were brought up to have at least some type of, of decency in thinking about the way we should treat our fellow man, our brothers and sisters. Even if they're not brothers and sisters in the faith, there needs to be some respect, there needs to be some love, there needs to be some grace that's given. You'd have none of that without Jesus. It's not taught in Islam. 
It's not taught in any of the other world religions that exist. None of them. None of them teach what Jesus has said right there. Sacrifice yourself for others. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. It's had a profound impact. And that's what makes Christianity so beautiful. That's what makes Jesus so beautiful. His own self-sacrificial love. Uh, you, You think of all... Of, of Jesus teaching and how much he emphasizes uh, servanthood in the kingdom. Lord, who is greatest in the kingdom? Well, the one that's greatest is the least and the one that's the servant of all. In the night he's betrayed, Jesus takes the form of a servant and he washes all the feet of his disciples. And he says, if I am your Lord and your teacher, and I am rightly so, and I've done this for you, then you should do this to one another. See, that's the kind of beauty I'm talking about. It's the kind of thing that captivates. What kind of person would do this for me, for you, right? And and that's what I mean by by beauty in this context. As an aspect of Jesus' glory, um, Tim Keller has a really, I think, an excellent definition of of this aspect of glory. He says, uh, what does the term glorify mean? Here he's talking about uh, the verb to glorify somebody. He says, to glorify something or someone is to praise, enjoy, and delight in them. When something is useful, you are attracted to it for what it can bring you or do for you. But if it's beautiful, then you enjoy it simply for what it is. Just being in its presence is its own reward. To glorify someone is also to serve or defer to him or her. Instead of sacrificing their interest to make yourself happy, you sacrifice your interest to make them happy. Why? Because your ultimate joy is to see them enjoy. Right? That, that's, that's, that's what the beauty of Jesus is. Jesus has sacrificed himself for us so that we can have joy. And peace. I, I did a study a couple of years ago. I, I read through the four Gospels. And, and as I was going through, I was just asking one question. What is it that Jesus specifically offers us in the Gospels? Where, where Jesus makes a statement. I have come so that you may have blank. Or I want you to have this. Uh, three things. Joy, peace, and life. Joy, peace, and life. And joy is the one that he mentions more than anything else. I want you to have my joy. So that your joy can be complete. Now that's an incredible view of who our Savior is. right? He wants us to have His joy. And how does He show us that? Through His own self-sacrificial love. And He calls us to do the same. One of the, uh, another aspect of this beauty is um, um, seen in, in many different stories. But the one that really jumps out to me is in Mark 1, 40-42. And uh, let, let me just read this snippet to you, uh, this, this short section of, of the whole larger uh, story. Uh, in this story it says, Now a leper came to him, came to Jesus, imploring him, and, kneel, uh, and kneeling, he said to him, uh, If you're willing, you can make me clean. And then moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he was made clean. That's just a simple story. But don't, don't miss the important thing that Jesus does here. He doesn't just say, I am willing to be clean. He reaches out and touches this man. Right? A leper. Social outcast. Everybody knows you don't touch a leper. You might get leprosy. And Jesus reaches out and touches this man. 
And not only does he touch him, but he gives him healing as well. I'm sure all these disciples are sitting back thinking, what kind of man is this? Jesus is always uh, pushing over social barriers. He, he's always pushing past what the Pharisees think are the, are the legal fences on what's right and wrong. One of the great stories is where he's been invited to a Pharisee's house, Simon the Pharisee. And if you remember, a woman comes in and, and comes in and anoints his feet with perfume and she's weeping and wiping his feet with her hair. And Simon and the other Pharisees are just sitting back saying, you know, if he were really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. And he would, you know, the implication is he would not allow her to touch him. But Jesus allows her to touch him. Jesus knows exactly what kind of woman that is. Right? And what does she receive? She receives forgiveness and healing and transformation. Same thing with the woman at the well. Jesus is going through Samaria. Samarian, Samarians are the half-breed outcast, as far as the Jews are, are concerned. And, and what does Jesus do? You can go read that in John. What does he do? He brings salvation to that woman. He opens her eyes to everything y'all have been thinking was going to happen. It's happening right here, right now. And he offers it in such a way that's, that's winsome and something that she can understand and bring in. My favorite part of that story is when she realizes who Jesus is and she runs back into town and she says, listen, I found this man out here and he told me everything I ever did. Right? How many of us get excited when we've just been outed and our worst sins are made public? Do we go run and tell everybody, oh, I can't believe it, just met Stacy. He knows about everything I ever did wrong. No, we're trying to cover that stuff up, right? But Jesus has confronted her with her sins in such a way, in such a beautiful way, that all she can do is go get other people and try to get them to meet Jesus. You've got to come, is this the Messiah? Could he be the one? Absolutely, profoundly uh, remarkable. And that's the fourth thing about this, this glory, this, this beauty of Jesus. It's absolutely remarkable. The, the Greek word uh, that's often translated glory in some of these contexts is the word doxa. And it means praiseworthy. Uh, something that is worthy of praise. Something that's worthy to be spoken again and again and again. And that's why I say it's absolutely remarkable. When we see Jesus as He is, and, and we see His radiant, profound, inexhaustible beauty, well, then the next thing we do is, is that, that we want to go out and tell other people about who He is and what He's done and how He's changed us, how He's turned our world upside down. And um, you see, again, you see that all throughout the Scriptures. That's what John is doing in this Gospel. Uh, the, whole, the whole Gospel of John is his testimony to how Jesus is absolutely remarkable. And so John, what he does in the fourth Gospel is he includes all of these narratives that neither Mark nor Luke nor um, Matthew record in their Gospels. Uh, he, 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 gives us a different, he gives us a different perspective on Jesus, just a different facet to look at Him. It doesn't change uh, the essential things, but He gives us more to see about Jesus and His earthly ministry. Uh, much more, uh, I, th- I think, added on. And when we put the four Gospels together, we have this incredible testimony to who Jesus was and what He did. And he just didn't stop there. He continues to work in and through his people and the church and history and, and moves on. And so uh, as we go forward, we too, we want to remember that everything that he does is absolutely remarkable. Um, in fact, in John's Gospel, in John 20, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. 
But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Even John had the limit uh, what he wrote. And for John, he wanted to include those things that would uh, motivate us, that would, that would catalyze us towards faith, towards believing who Jesus is. And so... Uh, as we as we close out this study, I thought that would be a good place for us to land because Jesus is someone that we need to see and hear and respond to, and, and not just know facts and information about him, but know him as a person, uh, know him in a deep, personal, intimate way, in fellowship with him, walking day by day, so that we have remarkable things to say about him as he interacts with us on a daily basis. Look at, the, look, look at just the last couple of verses of the section that I read there in John. And, and let me just close out with this. In verse 16, uh, kind of bringing all this together, everything we've talked about. In, in John chapter 1, Verse 16, he says, Indeed, we have all received grace after grace from His fullness. You see that? We have all received grace after grace from His fullness. One of the massive revelations uh, that, that Jesus makes and shows to us is the very nature of God Himself and, and the nature of God's grace. He, he'll say that here at the end of this passage. Nobody's seen God at any time, but Jesus, the Messiah, He has revealed Him to us. And one of the things that we see is, is that as Jesus reveals the grace of God, it's, it's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. You cannot exhaust it. You can never get to the end of it. He, Jesus is gracious beyond all comprehension. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 17. He says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now clearly, let me just say this, there is grace and there is truth in the law of Moses. There's no doubt about that. But I think what John is saying here is that the grace and truth that's been revealed in Jesus far surpasses anything that had come before it. Anything at all. And just one example, like the leper, the story I just read of the leper. If you go back and you read Moses' law, you know there's all kind of things that a leper has to do to go to present himself before the priesthood to find out if he really has leprosy. And then if you do, you can be cast out as unclean. And then you have to, sometimes there are washings. Jesus simply speaks the word and the man is healed. But, but let me suggest something that's more profound than what Jesus does. When he reaches out to touch that man in grace, he, he, he does something that was not allowed for under the law of Moses. Under the law of Moses, there were all these barriers put up to keep what is holy and sacred completely distanced from the profane. From the common things, right? So you have this distinction in the law. There are things that are clean and there are things that are unclean. The things that are clean are things that are acceptable to be used in the worship and service of God. The things that are unclean are not so. They're just common things. Uh, Sometimes they're filthy things, but not always. It's just something that's not acceptable to be used in God. And so you never want to bring something that's unclean and potentially contaminate Something that's clean. What Jesus does when he stretches out the leper is he turns everything on its head and he says, listen, I'm going to take what's unclean and now I'm going to infect it with what's holy. This is one of the major shifts that Jesus does that allows us 
to show His glory to everybody that we come into contact with. Now with Jesus, there is nothing that is outside the bounds. There's no person that's outside the bounds that, that we come into contact with that we can't stretch out with Jesus' self-sacrificial love and infect them with His holiness. Now you and I are a traveling tabernacle, the church of the living God. And that's why in these previous weeks I've talked about Jesus being our perfect high priest, uh, our perfect uh, better sacrifice. We're under a new covenant. We have been united together in a new body. We're a new temple before the Lord God. Why is all this? Jesus has done all this so that we can go out and proclaim and show His inexhaustible goodness to everybody that we come into contact to, with. And as we go, we, we don't have to be worried about being contaminated by the commonness or by the uncleanness of the people we come into contact with. No, they need to be worried that they may be infected with the holiness that is present with us through Jesus and His Holy Spirit that dwells among us. That's His grace upon grace upon grace that we've been called into, that we're now part of. Grace and truth came through Jesus. I could spend endless time talking about that. Let me just say this very quickly. Who Jesus is, He never compromises grace, and He never backs away from the truth. And that's a major sticking point in the modern church. In the West, we are often proclaiming grace at the expense of the truth. Jesus never does that. Those two things are always exactly where they should be. With Jesus, it's grace, but it's always filtered through truth. The woman at the well is a great example. He, yes, he accepts that woman where she is, but in truth and in love, he will not allow her to remain where he finds her. She is transformed through the truth and the grace of Jesus. And so we too, we need to remember that as we go, as we go forward. And then the last thing, no one has ever seen God The one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side, has revealed Him. And let me just say, I'll I'll end with this, kind of right where I started. It's easy in a study like this to, to get hung up and think about Jesus in terms of what He's done for us or to us. It's easy to, to see Jesus just as an object, right? Somebody that we study and we know historical facts and information about. I know I've said this before, at least twice in here. I, I went through three years of Bible college and four years of seminary. And after graduating from both of those things, it was about two years after that, that I realized I knew a lot about Jesus, but I didn't know Him. I didn't know Him in a, in a profound, personal way. And, and again, the Lord was working in all that. He, he had to take me through those things. And He had to get me to the point where I, where I could see that reality. And, and, and a lot of us are on that journey in one way or another. Uh, but, but there's a, a huge difference in looking at Jesus as just an, an object of study. That's what all the liberal scholars do. The liberal scholars believe there was somebody named Jesus. But they definitely don't believe that He was the Son of God incarnate. The Word becoming flesh, dwelling amongst us, revealing the very glory of God. So they miss the boat altogether. Instead, what Jesus calls us into is this personal, ongoing relationship with Him. So that any time we open Scriptures, uh, the Holy Spirit is working to help us to see Jesus a little more clearly. To come to know Him a little bit more deeply. Because as people that's been cleansed by His blood... That he is called out of every nation, tribe, and language and assembled together in his one body 
which is a new temple for the Lord. As Paul says, the church is the very pillar and the buttress of the truth. It is our job to represent this radiant, profound, inexhaustible beauty to Jesus, to the world. That's what we're called to do. And that's why we need to know Him as He really is. Not just some historical person on the pages of a bunch of different books and and in the pages of Scripture, although that is important. But to see Him as He is, as the one who is alive, who is at the right hand of the Father, who 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 is profoundly captivating, and someone that even if we think we know Him deeply, He's still got a lot more to show us about Himself and to call us into. And so this study is just a small step into some of those topics that I think are are really, really significant about Jesus and how He has changed us, our relationship with God, our understanding of history, and everything that's going on. So I pray that, that you'll keep on pushing into this. And above all things, that you'll join with me in giving thanks that we do know Jesus in a deep and profound way as our Savior and as our Lord and as our soon-returning King. So as I close out, let me pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank You for Your Word, um, which is profound in and of itself, but we know that You've given us Your Word so that we can know You deeply and truly. And the ultimate way that you've expressed this to us is in the person of our Lord Jesus. No one has seen you in your essence, uh, in, in your deepest profound reality at any time. But Jesus has taken on human flesh. He's become uh, a human as we are to provide a way for us to understand you in a deeply personal, intimate way, in, in a way that we couldn't get in any other way. And so we thank you for all these things. We do thank you for all that he's done for us. The fact that he has given of himself, he shed his blood to make us clean and to make us whole. By his grace, he's forgiven us of all of our transgressions. Uh, By his grace, uh, you've given us your Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to empower us with the same power, your glory that raised Jesus from the dead so that we might walk in newness of life. And so, Father, I pray as my brothers and sisters and I leave here tonight, uh, we as your people will make it first and foremost to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, to come to know Him more deeply uh, every day uh, forward, to keep our eyes focused on Him as the author and perfecter of faith, and to yearn and desire for His return when He will make all things complete and set all things right. And so we pray with all the other saints who have come before us, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And it's in His awesome and powerful name that we ask all this. Amen.